On the Tibet Road by C. E. Beckhofer. Travel Collection One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anita Sloma Martinez. On the Tibet Road. After I had spent some time exploring the delights of Kashmir, I joined a couple of English friends who were about to undertake a journey along the road that leads into Tibet. We had, of course, no intention of following the road to its limit, but we anticipated an interesting trip through the heart of the Himalayas. We started off one day from the end of the Wular Lake with a little company of servants and ponies, the latter bearing our supplies on their backs. After two days we had definitely left the valley of Kashmir behind, and were well into the mountains. After climbing a great deal, we passed beyond the altitude where the last trees grow. We came out of a fragrant pine forest upon a great white shoulder of a snow field. We could hardly bear to look at the mountains, so dazzling was the snow upon them, and we had to put on our snow goggles. A well-worn line of tracks showed the road, and another, rising more directly and steeply through the snow, the short cut. We trudged up the shorter way, pressing the soft flakes beneath our feet into little lumps of ice. Sometimes they melted away under us, and we slipped down the cold, moist slope, and now and then we fell up to our waists through the crust of a concealed ice hole. The worst was that we were exposed all the time to the heat of the tropical sun, which burned our bodies despite the surrounding expanses of snow, and it was melting the snow to such an extent that we never knew how to walk. At one step our feet would fall through deep into the snow, the next would hold firm, and the next would drop us into our waists. It was a wearisome business. The ponies with our baggage whinnied uneasily as their legs slipped across the ice or fell into the dips. The six pony men, one to each three horses, led them on with a monotonous cry of Hush Kubadar! Hush! Be careful! Hush Kubadar! But at last we reached the summit of our first serious pass and knew that we were definitely on the famous Gilgit Road. I know no road like the Gilgit Road, a path that winds through the pine woods of Kashmir, crosses in faraway valleys, scores of rivers and little streams, by stepping-stones or rude bridges of logs or even a single unsmooth tree-trunk and grips its way through the steep slopes of everlasting snow despite blizzards mist and avalanches until at last it comes to the desolate distant little outpost of our indian empire where it meets the russian and chinese frontiers up and down this road the postmen have to scramble in all sorts of weather carrying the daily post to Gilgit by two-mile relays. Sometimes we found the road lying across an ice-field, underneath which a stream tunneled its way. Then the road and the stream would come out into sight, crisscrossing each other by dangerous little ice-bridges. Then we would come to pine forests, where we would find our camp pitched near a clear stream from which we would drink, meeting there wild-looking men from the remoter valleys, true mongolian and tibetan types in fur-lined pushtu coats and round woolly caps flocks of sheep and goats would be feeding there 
tended by little shepherd lads. In one valley, a horrible icy wind seemed to be blowing continuously across the plowlands, even when the midday sun blazed down on the boulders and the dazzling white blocks of quartz. We camped there for three days beside the river, near a crazy wooden bridge, the whole center section of which rested unfastened on the two abutments in order that in a flood it might be immediately swept away without wrenching the foundations which were securely buried in the banks after the flood a new centerpiece could be quickly built and laid upon the sides again then we moved up the valley to a place more sheltered from the wind by the mountains we pitched camp beside a wooden mosque under some mighty elms the mosque was pagoda-roofed and walled with smoothed logs and latticed windows. It stood in an untended garden full of weeds and wildflowers and enclosed by a high fence. A dozen ragged white flags waved on a platform and strips of cloth and paper were tied across the doorways. Within was a saint's tomb, made of rounded stone and covered with a dingy awning. A few days after we left this place, I lost my nerve. It came about in this way. We had been marching along a valley for a few hours on smooth turf, crossing by insecure bridges of tree trunks many streams of melted snow dashing down the nullahs. As I came out above a village, I saw the servants pitching our camp on a small grassy meadow that jutted out from the mountainside. I started to cross a steep, bare slope towards them in order not to have to descend to the village and then climb up again to the tents halfway across the path i had taken began to narrow and at last it split into two or three goat tracks on none of which i could hope to find a foothold with my stiff rush sandals i stood there leaning against the slope barely supported by the pressure of my instep on a ledge hardly an inch broad my other leg hung loose I tried to turn and get back along the path, but as I moved, my foot slipped off the ledge and I found myself lying flat on the steep face of the slope. Below me it ran sheer down three or four hundred feet to the stony riverbed, where the tossing river dashed against the timbers of the little bridge that led across to the wooden houses of the village. There was nothing to clutch but rare and vain blades of grass, I tried to dig my fingers into the soil, but it was too hard, nor could I do anything but press my bare knees and elbows hard against the slope. I knew that if I relaxed my pressure, I should slide down the hillside in an instant. I had no fear at all, for I did not believe it possible to die then. With my cheek rubbing the soil, I shouted, and at once I saw a man in the village far beneath come out of his house by one of its little shuttered openings, look up, and immediately rush off to my rescue. He came tearing up the wall of rock, leaping barefooted like one of his goats. Sahib, Sahib, he screamed, with tears of excitement running down his face. Then I felt as if I were slipping, appallingly slowly, not by distance, but so to speak by degrees of relaxation. I clung looser and looser, Still I could not dig a grip with my fingernails. Soon I must slip a twentieth of an inch, then a quarter, then an inch, then three hundred feet. The man came up nearer with hideous grimaces and cries. 
i thanked heaven he was a villager and not a timid cashmere of the town my knees went at last and with a scrape my body tautened my elbows came away from the soil and just as my whole body commenced to move the villager reached me and clasped me firmly by the hand barefooted he walked along almost with ease below the path supporting me with his grip as i clambered back to it and along to the road sahib he sobbed this is not a path for sandals looking down i found that my friends and one or two of our coolies had started to run to my rescue but none of them could possibly have reached me in time i had never doubted yet my nerve was gone and for all the rest of the trip i staggered and swayed on the narrow places when i started over them alone one of our marches led us through uncharted valleys and we found that the usual estimate of the mileage of the route was badly out instead of sixteen miles as we had thought we found we had to walk twenty-eight a very considerable distance in a country where the sun makes all movement nauseous for five hours in the middle of the day and the altitude ranging from eight to fourteen thousand feet above sea level impedes easy breathing at all times marching is difficult and often dangerous in the snow and at nightfall one would not dare to move a step this march finished our coolies who refused to go on climbing a hill over our camp they stood there in a row with uplifted arms and cursed us with a long rising wail after which they sat down and made themselves a camp for the night at dawn they silently departed having arranged with the people of a neighboring village to take over their job and to pay them their share out of the total amount received we started off next day with our new coolies and found a long climb before us which it was imperative to finish before noon lest the afternoon should bring a storm and catch us in the heights i was given the thankless task of bullying and blarneying the coolies into making all possible speed and i discharged my duty at the expense of my strength my wind and if the coolies repeated prayers had any effect my soul's fate and that of all my ancestors and descendants however we made camp in good time and weather and the coolies forgot their troubles and sang folk songs to me to show that they forgave me two nights we camped on a bare patch of earth surrounded by miles of snow while near by the rushing mushki river serpentined its way through the broad level strip of ice deep in snow that was soon to be all melted into one mighty river there were no trees only a few rare stumps of rotting wood yet strangely we often heard the cuckoo's monotonous cry and by their chilly burrows down through the snow brown-furred marmots watched us sitting on their haunches and warning each other with shrill bird-like cries the third night we reached a village that consisted of one building a few tibetans and their dirty children were sitting on its broad spacious roof which was only three or four feet above the surrounding earth inside was a big excavated chamber where they and their numerous herds of goats and bullocks slept in airtight promiscuity their chief aid to agriculture was so plentiful that one of my companions remarked i have camped in running water i have camped on the summit of a mountain and on the side of a precipice but never never have i camped in a dung heap 
the two miles beyond this fragrant spot occupied us several hours for an avalanche had destroyed the path and we and the coolies endured some exciting rock climbing and crossing of snow bridges that often bent and sometimes broke then at last we got down out of the snow and trudged through a dry hot valley we passed by mushki and three or four other villages each with its carefully enclosed treasure two or three shriveled leafless juniper trees then a decayed mud fort came into sight and a couple of small brick buildings and two or three mud huts this was dras which the tibetans called hembabs there was a young lieutenant of the guides in camp at dras bearded like the pard and so were we for who dares shave in that climate and full of brilliant military inventions we spent the evening chatting in his tent and rested at dras with him the next day then he went on central asia wards at dras we saw the first caravan of the year passing through to central asia a slender apricot-cheeked yarkandi merchant was travelling with a score of ponies laden with stores for those desolate regions whose very names we hardly knew all along the road now we met caravans of handsome white-capped yarkandis and filthy squat pigtailed tibetans some with a hundred loaded ponies some with only a dozen there were also many uncouth little parties coming in from yarkand from one i bought a quantity of dried ladakh fruits but i bargained in vain for some curious wooden bowls off which they ate the tibetans begged incessantly for matches leaving their ponies and fawning upon us with their dirty hands outstretched we now set out to return to kashmir our route lay through the zogi pass which is the link between kashmir and central asia the pass has this peculiarity that though it lies above a big ascent from kashmir there is no drop at all on the other side but the valley winds along quite levelly from dross we came up to it in a day and traversed its difficult snows early the next morning the summit of the almost unagraded snow-field can only be observed by the traveller by watching the direction in which the streams flow just at the watershed we met a high official of ladakh travelling with a large and picturesque retinue in palanquins and undecorated ponies we began to descend to civilization again and at last we came to a path nearly free from snow cut in the rock cliff of a winding gorge lofty and bare we were reaching the point famous throughout asia where the caravans exhausted with their long marches through the ladakh steppes win their first glimpse of the beauties of kashmir the path led through occasional soft masses of snow to a projection in the bare treeless rock it was as barren a spot as any we had traversed we turned the dingy corner and cried out in delight for there stretching beneath us were the green mountains and meadows sparkling streams and sunny banks of flowers of the famous sindh valley what a contrast with the accursed nula of gujrind and the deep soft snow of the zogi pass we hastened down the wide circling path to the flowers and meadows and the bubbling streams 
and the shade of the mighty green amphitheatres of deodars enjoying them all as if we had never seen such lovely things before for the tribesmen of central asia coming here for the first time it must seem a paradise our journey was over two long marches through the lovely valley a mad twenty-mile dash on a little village pony with a blanket for a saddle two holes in it for stirrups and a bridle of rope a dark midnight paddle by dark canals and lakes and early one morning i woke to find myself beside my houseboat on the broad jilum a mile above srinagar no more for us the heat of the sun and the furious winter's rages no more the leafless junipers and the soft deep treacherous snow now i might lie beneath the plane trees and gaze over the sunny wheat at the distant snows and my only curse was beelzebub and his million winged subjects End of On the Tibet Road